Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious God, Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to return once again into your house as your people this evening to worship you. We thank you that you have blessed us with this day, one in seven set apart for your worship, a day that reminds us of our destination, our eternal destination where we will be with you for eternity, worshiping you in your presence. And even as we live in this world and we oftentimes find ourselves wearied by the cares of this world, we thank you that you have given us this institution that we can lay aside our cares of the world to gather together as your body of believers to worship you and, and the great blessings that are promised to us as we do this as we engage in the very thing that we were created to do, to worship you, we, Lord, can testify that as we leave this place, we feel refreshed, that we feel energized and ready once again to go into the world and engage in the tasks and the duties that you have called us to. And Lord, as we gather together this evening, we are once again mindful of the many needs that are represented in this congregation, both of those who are physically present here this evening, but also of those who are not able to be with us today. We pray for those that are unwell in body. We pray that you would grant them healing, that you would give them comfort and recovery, that you would be with the, the medical personnel that would be attending to them, that they would soon recover and be strengthened once again. We think of those in our midst, especially in this past week and the week before that, who have been bereaved. Lord, our hearts grieve with them as they grieve the loss of loved ones. We remember Miss Kay and her grandson. We remember Mary Hunter and her father who has passed away. We remember Miss Bunny and her sister. Lord, we bring before these families into your presence, asking that you would comfort them that you would minister to them even this day as some of them are unable to be with us. We pray that you would be especially close to them. Our Father and our God, we know that in, this, in such times as these, we often question and we often look for answers when we can't find answers. But we pray that they would find comfort in you, in you, our God, who is sovereign, who knows all things, and who has poured out his love upon us. We pray that you would remind them of your word, that you would be with those around them who seek to comfort and encourage, and be with us too. We pray that you'd give us the words to speak, that as we speak, we would be slow to speak and quick to listen. May we offer a listening ear and a shoulder to cry upon. May we come alongside them in this time of difficulty, in this time of sorrow and sadness. Lord, even as we grieve with our brothers and sisters, we are reminded of the brevity of life, that each one of us has a day appointed in which we will pass away and in which we will lose many loved ones. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us in the face of this to be sober-minded, to remember 
to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to be working while it is still daytime. We pray that you would lead us and guide us through this world as we continue as pilgrims. Thank you for this morning and the service that we've had, particularly committing these parents and families into your hands and the little children that you have blessed them with. We pray that much wisdom and grace would be granted to these parents as they seek to raise up the children you have given them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray that you would equip and strengthen them. We pray that you would help them to persevere in this important task and that they would return to your word time and time again to find instruction and that they would return to the cross as they struggle daily, as they fail and they fall short of the standards. We pray that they would cling to the cross. They would cling to the grace of Jesus Christ and find refreshment and nourishment through it. And our Father and our God, as we turn now to your word, we come before you with expectation. We come to your word with much longing to meet with you. We come before you to be taught of you. And so as we turn to your word this evening, even in the book of Exodus, we ask our God that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your word, that you may stir us up unto good works, and that you would open our eyes to behold who you are, Lord, and who you have revealed yourself to us to be. May we leave this place stirred up to worship you. May we leave this place in awe and adoration of the great God that we serve. May none of us leave this place unchanged. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Exodus and chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And this evening we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Last time when our brother Dirk was up here, he looked at chapter 33 and uh, he looked at how Moses intercedes for the people after they have sinned against God. And he emphasized how God is gracious and how he is Though he is a holy God, he still deals patiently with the Israelites. That though they ought to be destroyed for their sin because of Moses and his mediation, the Lord tarries. The Lord does not destroy Israel. And he reminds us of, of this great God, our holy God, who has continued to be patient and kind throughout the generations. And as Moses sought to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord tells him that he cannot look upon his glory and live. And so what we are going to be reading about this evening is a response to Moses' request in chapter 33, to behold the glory of the Lord, to know the Lord. And may it be our desire to grow in our knowledge and understanding of our great God, even as we hear his word. So I begin reading Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, 
and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here ends the reading of God's word. The God of the Bible is not a figment of our imagination. Now that might sound strange in a church where we are all Bible-believing Christians, the majority of us are. And yet, so many times we too can fall into the temptation of attributing to God things that are not found in his word, of thinking about God in ways that are contrary to what the word of God actually says. Christianity stands in stark contrast to other world religions where their God is simply a figment of their imagination. They come up with ideas of what God ought to be and how he should be and how he deals with people, and that is then uh, penned down for generations to follow. Yes, these religions would claim that they received what they know about their gods by some special revelation, but this is not true because the word of God tells us that there is but one God, the one and only true living God, as he is revealed in Scripture. Therefore, as we come this evening to consider this passage of Scripture, we see something very, very important, that God himself reveals his character to Moses and by implication to us. The nature of, being, the, nature of the creature-created distinction makes it necessary that God ought to take the first step to reveal himself to us. If we are to know anything about God, then God must make that first step. He must condescend to our level using language that we would understand and coming into our world in a sense to speak to us that we may know him. And God has done this in the creation around us in a general sense, but we know that in his word we find all that is necessary for salvation, that God has revealed himself to us and to those believers through past generations by special revelation, declaring his attributes, his plan of salvation, and his law, that we may obey him in all that we do. And so as we consider 
the God of the Bible, the God that we believe in, I want us to be thinking if there are some attitudes in our own lives that we have adopted and fallen into which are contrary to the scriptures. May we take a moment even as we, as we reflect on this passage of scripture together to think about such attitudes that are contrary to what the scriptures teach us about God. For example, how do you respond in the face of sin? Is your temptation to draw away from God? Are you prone to believe that because of your sin you are no longer acceptable before God? And would that reveal that your heart is not trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior, but instead on your own good works? That is just one example, but I could list many others that we could think about to search our own hearts and think about such attitudes that we've let creep into our lives, subtle ways. Nonetheless, we have distorted the view of what Scripture teaches us about God. And we've seen even in, in this series as we've been working through Exodus that the Israelites came up with this carved image of the golden calf. And even as they do that, it's, we see that it's a figment of their imagination. Though they, Aaron uh, forms this golden calf, he does present before the people of Israel that this is, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. These are the gods that you ought to worship. Now, you might think that it's strange that they who have experienced such a great deliverance should fall into such a sin, but we see how it creeps in in subtle ways. Uh, they provide a means, a subtle way of, uh, of going against what God has commanded, that they should have no other gods before him. And so this is a caution that we ought take. So to we find in Romans and chapter 1 how we have, though God has revealed himself very plainly, uh, people have turned away from worshipping the creator and have worshipped the created beings. And this is nothing but idolatry that we must repent of. So as we look at this passage of scripture together, we want to notice that what we find here in verses 1 to 3 takes us back to what we have already seen in chapter 33. As Moses pleads with God in chapter 33, verse 13, he says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And then later on in verse 19, uh, we read verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before, I'm sorry, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so we see that what we're reading about here in chapter 34 corresponds to that request that Moses had made. And in turn, God has said that I will pass before you. I will not let you see my face, but I will proclaim my name. And as we have seen in here in, in chapter 34, God does exactly that. He declares his name. And what we find is quite incredible in our passage because God himself is giving testimony about himself. Uh, earlier on in, in, in Exodus, when God uh, comes to Moses by the burning bush, and Moses asks, who should I say sent me? And God reveals himself, say, I am sent you. And so what we find here is a further expansion of what God had already revealed about himself there in Exodus chapter 3. Now we get more about God's attributes and about God's character as he has dealt with the Israelites thus far. And this is consistent with what we see throughout the scriptures. 
So then, as we consider this passage, let us remember that as Christians, we ought to let Scripture dictate what our understanding of God ought to be. As Christians, we ought to let Scripture dictate what our understanding of God is. And as we consider this text, we'll first of all look at the preparation, the preparation that is spoken of that Moses must undertake prior to coming up to the mountain to meet with God. And then we will consider the proclamation, God's self-proclamation of who he is, as we read there in verses 6 and 7. And finally, we'll see Moses' response, his prostration, if you might, his prostration as he sees God in all his glory and he hears his name declared, he bows down and worships God, which ought to be our response as we, as we come to know God and we come into his presence to meet with him. So firstly, let's look at preparation. We see here in verses 1 to 4 that the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. An observation I'd like us to take note of here is compared to earlier when God comes, uh, tells Moses to come up to receive the Ten Commandments. In that instance, God provides Moses with the tablets. The tablets are provided for him and the Ten Commandments are then written down for Moses. So in chapter 24, verse 12, we see that God provided those tablets for Moses uh, with the Ten Commandments, which were then written down upon it. Now here we find that Moses is being told to come up with the two tablets, uh, just like the first, that he must prepare these tablets. And, and he's being reminded that he broke this in, in his wrath as he came down and he saw the golden calf that they had fashioned for themselves. Uh, this is a consequence of the sin of the people. Uh, of that, it, it points to the fact that the relationship between God and the people that he brought out of Egypt has been distorted because of their sins. And so though God provided the tablets in the first instance, he is now being told to, to come up with these tablets in this second uh, time around. But in the second place, notice here in verse 3 as we go down, Moses is told that no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. And so the preparation that ought to take place is that the land should be cleared. No one should come into the presence. And this once again reminds us of the holy God that we serve, that God dictates how we are to worship him. And we cannot go into God's presence aside from the, the means that he has provided. And so for us, we are to come to worship God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. We cannot approach God and worship him uh, based on our imagination. We cannot depend on our own ideas or innovation to come up with ideas of how God ought to be worshipped, looking at the trends that may be surrounding us. Rather, we ought to look to the word of God to the scriptures to dictate how we should worship God and how we should approach him. And in these latter times, we are to approach God through his son, Jesus Christ, by believing in his finished work upon the cross. But we also see here back in Exodus 34 and verse 3 that this is a consequence of the sin of the people of Israel once again. We know that Aaron was at the forefront of fashioning this calf as the people came and made the request, he fashions his calf and he later on denies that he had a hand in it. 
And so now, though earlier on, Aaron and Joshua accompanied Moses up the mountain, at this point, they are told not to come up the mountain with Moses. Moses will go up the mountain alone. And so though God is being gracious in his conduct, he has not destroyed Israel in their entirety, but there are still consequences that they must suffer. And we'll continue to see these consequences that Israel, throughout their history, must suffer because of their sin and rebellion against God. And as we study this passage, we will we'll see time and time again that though God is gracious, he does not pardon waywardness and rebellion against him. He's gracious and he's quick to forgive those who repent uh, and believe, and yet he punishes sin because he is a just God. Many times we are prone to, to think that though uh, when our sins are forgiven, because our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, we do not live with the consequences. But this is not true. As we live in this broken world, we know that sin has consequences. And that though we are forgiven, that though we ask for forgiveness, and we have already been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still suffer the consequences that sin brings into our lives. Whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's us being made distant from God, uh, whether it's a, a break in our communion with God because we continue to live in sin and not repent of our sins, or in the impact it has on our relationships with one another. Sin has devastating effects and we cannot escape them. And so my plea to you this, this evening is that we should not take sin lightly. Though we have a gracious God and a gracious Savior, though our sins are atoned for, we need to treat sin with all seriousness. We should not take sin lightly as believers. As one, uh, one theologian has said that if we are not putting sin to death, uh, sin will be killing us. And so we, we ought to be killing sin daily in our lives. We ought to remember that we are in a spiritual battle and we must be conscientious and we must be aggressive in this walk. But we do not do it apart from, apart from the grace of God, apart from the graces that he has bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. So we see the consequence here. Moses is told to come up to the mountain on his own. But we also see the preparation that is necessary before he ascends up the mountain to meet with God. It is quite remarkable, again, showing us of the gracious God that we serve, that though Israel has rebelled against him, he still invites Moses once again to come up to the mountain, and he says he's going to give them the law once again, though they had sinned against a holy, holy God. And so having considered uh, very briefly the preparation, the preparation that was necessary prior to going up to the mountain, we can come in the second place and look at the proclamation, the proclamation that we see that God makes here in verse 6 and following. We notice, starting from verse 5, however, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses goes up the mountain. He goes up to the mountain where the Lord comes down in all his glory to meet with his, uh, with his chosen prophet, his chosen mediator who will receive his law at that point. And so Moses is to go up and that's where uh, the Lord comes down in his special presence. It is quite remarkable as we notice there in verse 5 that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And so though he said that he cannot see his glory face to face and live, 
as we saw last week in chapter 33, it is still quite incredible and it reminds us of the special ministry that Moses had as a special prophet of God, how God came and stood with him. And as we, as we learned last time that God speaks with him as, as friend to friend, as man to man would. Again, once again, we are reminded of the gracious God that we serve and how he has revealed himself to us. And as we go on to see what he says about himself in verse 6 and 7, we are reminded that unless God reveals himself to us, we cannot know anything about him. Now we know that all of scripture is breathed out by God. And in that we can say that God is the author of all his word. Every scripture that we find uh, is inspired by God. And yet when we look at this text where God himself is speaking, revealing his own character, there is something special uh, for us to consider about these two verses. God himself declaring his character, declaring his attributes, as it were. And as we come to consider, and, and I'd encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to uh, listen to John's series in the Sunday School lessons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those, because this really goes back to the attributes of God, which we have been covering over the past several weeks. Uh, we are reminded that as we consider the attributes of God, that each of these attributes should not be taken apart from the simplicity of God. We shouldn't forget that there, God has no parts in himself. And so though we may speak of God being gracious and merciful and slow to anger, it does not by any part mean that it's God possesses these attributes in part, but rather that God is all gracious and all merciful, that his entire being, in a sense, is those uh, attributes that we can speak of him. So it's not a part of him that is merciful or is gracious and that those attributes that we can consider do not change. And this is a great comfort to us. And so as we make our way to consider these verses, we see here in verse 6 that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we'll make our way through each of these um, attributes that God speaks of himself. We see that, first of all, he gives us his name and repeated twice there for us, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. And as we consider God's mercy, we see that God has dealt with humanity since the fall in a merciful way. For if God was not merciful, being a holy God, we would have been entirely destroyed. We would have entirely been destroyed. And so right from the fall, of Adam and Eve, we see that God does not deal with them according to the sins that they committed, according to their first sin there in the garden. Though God had said that if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, God is gracious in dealing with them, that though they would eventually die, the death that is promised to them does not come immediately. And that even in that moment, God is gracious, as we will see, in providing them with clothing and providing care for them as he continues to deal with them. Coming to the Exodus narrative, we've seen how God delivers them from Egypt. He is, uh, delivers them by the hand of Moses, and they see all these miracles that are performed by the hand of Moses. Through the Red Sea, uh, they pass, and, and, the, and the Egyptians are destroyed. And yet we notice that throughout their journey, even until this point, they continue to grumble against God. They grumble for food. They grumble for water. They, they complain and tell Moses that they would 
rather have died in Egypt than to have come out here in the, in the desert. They remember the good things that they had in Egypt. And yet through all of this, God continues, uh, continues to be merciful to them. He does not punish them as the sin deserves. And so as we think about the mercy of God, we see that God does not treat us according to our sins, that though, though the wages of sin is death, God is gracious towards his people, that he continues throughout Israel's history to deal with them in this manner. He continues, as we will see later on, being patient and long-suffering with them, bearing with them, and not destroying them entirely for their sins. And, and, and God does not pardon, he does not overlook the sins of the people. They do receive just punishment for their sins. But he is merciful in being patient. He is merciful in bearing with them. And what we see revealed about God here in these verses is so important uh, to, the, to the religion of Israel, to the, the worship of Yahweh, that throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see that they keep, the Israelites keep referring back to what God has revealed about himself. Throughout the Psalms, we see that they sing of the mercies of God and the, the love of God, the steadfast love and his grace. And, and we may think about it that whenever somebody asks, who is this God of Israel? Who is this God that you worship? They refer back to what he has revealed of himself. And so not only in what he has spoken here, in these verses, but also in the way he continues to deal with them, uh, testifies to the truths that we see here. And so humanly speaking, when somebody makes a testimony about themselves, if someone tells you something about themselves, we often don't take that testimony to be true in and of itself. We would like a second witness or somebody else to testify or verify what is being proclaimed, but not so with God. When God speaks, God is truth. And God is the creator of heaven and earth. We need no other testimony. We need no other witnesses to testify to what God has spoken of himself. And it is so powerful that God himself declares himself to be merciful and gracious. He promises to continue dealing with his people in this manner. And as we think even forward to how God has dealt with us in Jesus Christ, in that we have not received what we deserved. If we are in Jesus Christ, if we have put our faith in him, if we've repented and believed in him, then we are not destined for damnation, for eternity in hell, which is what we deserve. And so too, like we remembered from last week, the question is not why God sends good people to hell, but it's rather how does a gracious and holy God not destroy us for our sins, for our wickedness? How is it that he deals with us in such a merciful manner? This is what we should be thinking about. We should not think about how it is that those who have not believed in Jesus Christ perish, but we ought to rather think about how we, sinners such as you and I, can have this relationship with our God, how we can receive these great promises and blessings that are promised to us in Jesus Christ. And so as we turn even to Ephesians and chapter 1, uh, we see that God, we see there Paul reflecting upon how God has been uh, merciful, how he has been compassionate towards his people. Ephesians chapter 1 and, and starting from verse 3 going on, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so we see that God has been gracious. Not only does he not give us what our sins deserve, but he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that we might have in Jesus Christ. And so as we will later on consider how he has been gracious to us, we notice that uh, truth and that reality being brought to the fore, how God continues to deal with us as a merciful God as he has revealed himself to be. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we see that God has been merciful to us. God has not dealt with us according to what our sins deserved. He has looked upon us in our pitiful state, in our pitiful state as we were destined for eternity in hell. And yet he has sent his one and only son to die for us on the cross, that we might be reconciled to him. The same God who was merciful with the Israelites, who did not destroy them, and he continued to bear with them, who heard the prayers of Moses, his chosen servant, is the same God that has sent his son to die for you and me. But in the second place, we read in our verses that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. And we've already spent a little bit of, of time considering how he has been gracious to us, even in Jesus Christ. But thinking about the Israelites, we, we considered how they have continually sinned against God and they have rebelled against him. They have grumbled against his chosen servants. And God has continued to lead them. He has continued to provide for them. As they come up to Mount Sinai, he gives them the law. He has given them his chosen prophet, Moses, who would lead them. And even at this point, he still speaks and will speak in the, in the renewal of the covenant of how he is going to lead them into the promised land. God is gracious towards the Israelites in that he does not treat them according to their sins, but he also goes above and beyond, giving them more than they deserve, blessing them abundantly and heeding to the prayers of his servant Moses. And as we think about the grace of God, we think about it being the source of all the spiritual blessings that we have. Even as we looked at there in Ephesians chapter 1, and we see in Ephesians chapter 2, that the salvation that we have is one that we have received by grace. That is nothing that we have done to deserve it. And even the faith that we have, that we believe in Jesus Christ, is not one that we have worked up by ourselves or we have thought about. But the faith, the ability to believe, is a grace of God. He gives us that as a gift. We think about his word which we have, that we have received and has been preserved for us throughout the generations, how God has not left us to our own devices in this world, but rather he has dealt with us patiently. By grace, we are justified. We are presented before the Father because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We are presented before him as righteous and blameless and holy. 
not because of anything that we have done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Truly, this is a gracious work of God that he has bestowed upon us. And so as we, as we look at the Israelites, as we look at them throughout the history of Israel as a nation, that though God did punish their sins when they rebelled against him, that they did never receive what they should have. And, and in, even in the mediation of Moses, we see how he points forward to a greater mediator in Jesus Christ who would come and, and lay down his life for the salvation of his people. And when we think about God's grace, we, we, think, we can think about his saving grace that we've already talked about and his special grace that he bestows upon those he has chosen. But we can also think about his common grace, his grace that he has showered upon the entire world, even in those, upon those who do not believe in him and upon those who rebel against him. He still continues to provide them with food and shelter and rain. He still holds back evil from it being as, as evil as it could be. And so even in that, we see that God continues to deal with his creation, the created order in a gracious manner. But the grace that we, we read about is a sovereign grace, and, and this takes us back to chapter 33 and verse 19, uh, as we read there, and he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so we see that God is gracious to his people, not because of anything that he has seen in them or because of anything that he sees that will take place in the future, but it is according to his purposes, according to his will and for his glory that he predestines and he ordains all that is to take place. And so even as he is going to, even as he deals graciously with his people, we remember here that it is, it is his prerogative. It is God who undertakes, and it is God who chooses. And even in so doing, we cannot, we cannot throw a fist at God in a sense, because God is all-wise and all-knowing. And even in choosing us, he is being gracious, because all that we deserved for our sins was death. So we're reminded uh, from, from our Baptist catechism uh, that we, we are studying at the moment in question 10, that it is according to the counsel of his will and for his own glory that God has ordained all things, even our salvation, and that he chose us before the creation of this world for his glory. He does this because of his grace, because of his own counsel and nothing that is in us or nothing that he foresees in the future. But coming back to our passage once again in Exodus chapter 34, we read that he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. We've seen, again, and last week uh, our brother pointed this out to us. The Lord says uh, back in chapter 33 and verse 5 and 6, So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the Lord, though he could have destroyed them immediately for what they had done, they had committed an egregious sin against God. Though they should have attributed all that he had done in delivering them from Egypt, the mighty works that they had witnessed firsthand, they should have attributed all of that to Yahweh alone, and yet they saw it necessary to build a golden calf and attribute everything 
that they have experienced, their deliverance that they had experienced from Egypt and the destruction of Egypt as a nation, they attribute that to a golden calf which had been fashioned by their own hands. This sin is an egregious sin against Yahweh. It is idolatry, and they should have been destroyed and annihilated within a moment. And yet God chooses to deal patiently with them. He heeds Moses' voice, and though he tells them that he would deliver them to the promised land and he would not go with them, the people, Moses pleads for the people. He prays and he asks that they would not be left alone, that they would not be sent without, uh, without God, without God going with them. And so in that we see that God is patient. And again, we, we've seen this throughout the scriptures, that God takes, his, he takes time to listen to his people. Uh, even when we think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads that they would not be destroyed, and he continues to reason with God. We see Jacob wrestled with God. And, and in this, we, we see the compassionate nature of our God and the encouragement we have here to go before him in prayer, that our God hears our prayers, and as we wrestle with him, it's not that we change his will, but it is that we are conformed to his will. We are drawn closer to God as we pray to him and we seek out his will. So we, we, we ought to submit ourselves to the will of God. We ought to be mindful and we ought to remember that the God that we come before, he is our heavenly father and that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let us consider that next point now. We do want to, before we move on to that point, just take into account and, and remember that because our God is, is long-suffering, he is slow to anger, he is patient in dealing with us, we must be quick to repent. We must not take for granted his forbearance, his long-suffering with us. But as the scriptures remind us that today, Psalm 95, verse 7 to 8, today if you hear his voice, you should not harden your hearts. And, and again in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, or do you, presume, do you presume on the, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so if God has been patient in dealing with you in your wayward, wayward ways, in your sinful ways, he is being patient with you. He is giving you opportunity to repent and to turn to him. Do not take his long-suffering with you for granted. Do not take advantage of him being slow to punish your sins. But repent today if you hear the voice of the Lord. Repent of your sins and turn to him. Look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. But then we move on to consider that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what a great comfort this is. Just as all the other attributes that we have considered here, they come to us as a great comfort, the great reminder that our God is not one who changes his mind, who loves us one day and wakes up another day in a bad mood, as we human beings are so prone to do. Our love changes from time to time, from season to season. It is dependent on our feelings, and yet God does not change. It is such a comfort for us to know that our God 
is faithful to his promises, the promises that we find in his word, the promises that he has made throughout the generations to his people. And once again, we see here as God promised the Israelites that he would take them into the promised land, he remembers his promises. And time and time again, scripture reminds us that the Lord remembered, the Lord remembered his promises, the Lord remembered his people. We serve a God who is faithful to his promises and he is steadfast in keeping his promises to us. And in that we can find great comfort. We can find great comfort knowing that our God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow and forever. This is the great God that we come to serve and we come to worship. And so we go to, if we were to turn to Psalm 136, time doesn't permit for us to read all of it, but it is a great psalm for us to just reflect upon the Lord and his love for us, which endures throughout generations. In that psalm, in Psalm 136, we find the refrain over and over again, his love endures forever. As, as the psalmist reflects upon God's works of creation and how he has continued to deal with Israel throughout the generations, he breaks out into that repeated refrain, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. What a great reminder, and we need that reminder as we turn to that, uh, if we were to turn to that passage and just read it, it's so encouraging and so edifying for our souls to be reminded of God's love for us. God's love for us, which is displayed upon the cross when he sent his one and only son to die for us. It is because he loved us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he, cruci he was crucified on the cross that we might be reconciled to the Father. His love is displayed, is made manifest in the greatest degree, as it were, at the cross. At the cross, we see God's grace, his mercy, and his love being made manifest for humanity to see. This is the great God that we serve, the God who has remained the same throughout the Old Testament and New. But we see that display of his love, of his grace, and his mercy at the cross, where he gave up his one and only son to die for our sins. And so as we reflect on these truths, as we think about the God that we serve, as I said in the beginning, may it cause us to come to our knees, may it bring us to our knees in worship as we remember who it is that we come to serve and who it is that we meet with every day as we meet in his word. But we also want to look at his justice in the fifth place here as we consider this verse Continuing in verse 6 and 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so we see here, as I, as I touched on this earlier on, that God, though he is gracious, he pardons the sins of the people as Moses comes and intercedes for the people on the behalf of the people. And yet the Lord reminds them here once again, as he does in the giving of the Ten Commandments, that he will visit the sins of, uh, of the people and he will continue to do so throughout the generations, to the children and the children's generations. And this is significant because though God is gracious, he is not dealing with our sins by ignoring them or by pushing them under the rug, as it were. But he deals with our sins 
through Jesus Christ, through his atonement on the cross. Jesus becomes sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he makes atonement for our sins on the cross. And so we see that God, though he be gracious, though he is quick to forgive those who repent and believe, and that he will by no means forgive those who are wayward, those who do not repent will receive the just punishment for their sins. And so in this we see God is a just God, that he punishes sins by laying the sins of humanity upon Jesus Christ, making him the sin offering for us. And that when he dies on the cross, we are made right with God. And this is how God brings about that forgiveness that it's, that is speaking about in our verses. It is not by him ignoring it or turning a blind eye to it, because that would make him an unjust judge. But what we see in his proclamation, in his declaration of himself, is how God is merciful and gracious, and yet he is truly just, that he deals with sin and he, he will by no means ignore the sins of the people. And so as we, as we think about this, we must, we must take it with all seriousness. If you're sitting here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to not take God's long-suffering with you for granted. You ought to heed this warning that God will visit your sins, that you will receive the just punishment if you are not in Christ. He will by no means ignore the punishment that you deserve. But there is a way that he has made for us, that is through faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive the forgiveness why would you ignore the mercy and grace of our God and choose death and choose eternal damnation? Turn to our God and he will freely pardon. For our God is gracious and abounding in love. So having considered his attributes of God, which he himself has made known. After he declares these words before Moses, we notice in verse 8 that Moses quickly bows his head and worships God. And so we see here Moses' response. Moses had asked that God would reveal himself to him, and God has done just that. He has shown him his glory, but he has also made himself known to Moses in a very special way. He has made his presence known to him, but he has also explained what his name is, who he is, who is this God who has delivered them out of Israel. Yes, he is a holy God, but he is also merciful and gracious. He is patient with them, and he has been throughout the generations, and he continues to be with us today. This is the God that we serve and so though what Moses experienced was quite unique and one of its kind, this is why Moses is spoken of as a special prophet. And yet when we come to God's word, what we learn about it, as we read the scriptures, what we learn about God and what he has revealed to us throughout the pages of scripture is no different in a sense from what Moses learned about God. If you were truly to know this God that Moses knows, the, the, the God that revealed himself to Moses, if you truly know this God, then you shouldn't be unchanged. 
You shouldn't be indifferent and callous to reading words such as what we have read this evening as we reflect upon God's infinite mercy and his, and his abounding love unto us. We ought to respond in worship. We ought to look forward to corporate worship, but we also ought to look forward to worshiping God personally as we meet with him one-on-one, -on -one, as we meet together as a family, as we seek to worship in family worship, we ought to be looking forward to meeting with this God who has declared himself uh, to us, who has revealed himself to us who is through his son, Jesus Christ. But we also notice how Moses goes on to pray. In verse 9, he says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. We see how Moses intercedes for the people. And what is interesting to note here is how he, he, he stands with his people in saying that, Pardon our iniquity and our sin. We know that Moses was not with the people when they committed this grave sin and the sins that they have continued to commit and how they have continued to grumble against Moses. And yet, Moses comes alongside his people and he intercedes on behalf of them. He puts himself in their place and he intercedes for them, pleading that God would not destroy them and that he would take them once again as his inheritance. As we look upon the mediation of Moses, we can't help but think about the greater mediator, even Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, who continues to intercede for us and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so unlike Moses, Jesus lays down his life. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his people. And though the, the priests made a sacrifice, Jesus himself was the sacrifice. But he was the only sacrifice that could be made for our sins. We are reminded by the author of Hebrews that the, the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for our sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ has. He has atoned for our sins and therefore we are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We see how Moses pleads for the people and he, he prays for the people. And next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at how God renews this covenant. And I, I don't want to steal uh, Seth's thunder too much, so I won't uh, jump into that section. But we look forward to hearing how God will come down and, and renew this covenant that he makes uh, with, with his people once again. But as we come to a close, we, we ought to reflect upon our own lives and to think about uh, this great God that we serve and how we respond in the face of knowing this God. How do we respond when we read about him and we, we commune with him and we worship together? Are we moved? Are we stirred up? Are we brought to our knees to worship him because we see him for who he really is? And if that is not the case, we ought to pray and plead with him and ask him that he may draw us closer to him? Could it be that there is some un, unconfessed, un, undealt with sin in our lives that is hindering us from having communion with God? Or could it be, as we were, were talking about earlier on, that is, we have some unbiblical notions about who God is? 
May God search our hearts and may he convict us, help us to be made right with him through Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I want to read once again what God has declared of himself in verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for what it reveals to us about you. We thank you that we have the privilege of, of reading your word and sitting under its preaching. And we pray that as your word has gone out, that it would achieve the purpose for which it has gone out. We pray that you would be with us even as we leave this place. So we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.